Let's turn the precious Word of God to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. The book of Ecclesiastes means the preacher. Solomon refers to himself as the preacher several times throughout the book. The book of Ecclesiastes, though short, has its place in the Word of God because every word of God is pure And we are to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, not by bread alone. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book of philosophy. Philosophy is the study of life. It's the study of man. Why are we here? What are we to do with our lives? The book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible is to teach us how to maximize life under the sun. There's very little spiritual content in the book of Ecclesiastes because that's left to the other 65 books of our King James Bibles. Solomon is dealing with life under the sun, life on this earth, life that is before us. We're going to see those words today. When something is described as being before men, that means it's right in front of them and they can see it with these two eyes. There are things in heaven far greater than things on earth, and we cannot see them with these eyes. We see them with the eyes of faith. The Bible tells us which ones are more important. We walk by faith, not by sight, the Bible tells us. And it tells us that the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. They're of far greater weight and value than the things that we see and before us. Ecclesiastes is a book of philosophy, how to maximize living for God's people in this life under the sun. There are spiritual hints throughout it. That the man who fears the Lord is going to be blessed now and later. He gets all blessings. But for the most part, it's practical wisdom on how we're to conduct our lives. And so we come to chapter 8. We covered a few of these verses last Sunday. Very quickly, let us review. In the first verse is an appeal. And this is why I want to review. Because this is now the third time that I've used this text with the men of this church. Who is as the wise man? This rhetorical question is comparing the wise man as a collective noun for all wise men as being the superior men on planet earth. They are incomparably excellent. They are the delight and darlings of the earth. Men who know what ought to be done in any given situation. They are like David, Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus. They are men with understanding of the times like the men of Issachar who knew what Israel ought to do. These are the great men. And you know what is wonderful about the greatness that is set forth in the Bible? Most any man who sets his heart to seek the Lord and to seek His Word can be one of those great men. The world sets up standards that only a few can ever achieve greatness by their definition. But greatness in the sight of God is available to a little shepherd boy named David. To a slave on a slave trading block in Egypt named Joseph, whose family was a bunch of shepherds, nomads from Canaan, that the Egyptians despised. Or a castrated Jewish captive named Daniel in the province of Babylon. See? Think about it. Esther was an orphan girl, but she rose to queen of Persia because she was wise and God blessed her. Who is as the wise man? I want every boy and man in this church to be that wise man. I preach, I labor, I pray, I hope, I help, I encourage 
in whatever way I can, I want you to be those men. I want you to be the wise man. When you stand before God, you'll give an account for why you were not. Because he's given you all the means to be so. Who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? Wise men know the interpretation of things. This is not the interpretation of scripture. This is the interpretation of circumstances in life. So that you can look at an event and understand why it happened, how it happened, what the best response to it would be, how that response should be made, when it should be made, where it should be made. Oh boy, that sounds like a lot of wisdom. That's what a wise man knows and he knows how to interpret a thing. A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine. A man full of wisdom is full of boldness, confidence. He's full of joy. He has a merry heart, so he has a shining countenance. He has a continual feast because he's confident in God's greatness, glory, and the wisdom God has given him. He's confident in the wisdom of God's word. His face shines with boldness, with happiness, with cheer. And the boldness of his face shall be changed because it will increase yet more and more as he gains in wisdom. Because the book of Proverbs tells us that if you teach a wise man, he will be yet wiser. Are you growing in wisdom? Are you wiser today than you were a year ago? If you're not, go ahead and blame me. I'll show you what you've been given in the last 52 weeks. Don't blame me. There's only one person responsible for your level of wisdom, and it's you. It's you. You've chosen to be a fool. And the book of Proverbs knows that most men choose to be fools. Lady Wisdom offers her wisdom in the high places of the city. She crieth out to men and says, here I am, and I want to give you wisdom. I want you to come into my place and dine with me, and I'll teach you wisdom. But very few do. They want to stay the same. They're stuck in their ruts. And so they waste their lives. We throw them in the ground and get rid of them. They fertilize the dandelions, the robins. Eat from the dandelions and so it ends up on your windshield and God gets the glory because they would not take the wisdom that he freely offered. Right. It's a shame. And so Proverbs chapter 1 through 9 personifies wisdom as lady wisdom and the horror of those people who neglect her. Right. Do you know what lady wisdom said about those who neglect her? Those who sit in church and warm the styrofoam and then go home? They love death. 836. They love death. Okay, in a book of philosophy, if we're trying to find out how can we maximize our life under the sun, one of the things that has to be dealt with is politics. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, there's about six different passages that deal with politics because politics affect our lives so much. And so here we have a section on politics. It's verses 1 down through 11 is going to be about, verses 2 through 11 is about politics. And so let's quickly look at those lessons. The first lesson, and we looked at it last Lord's Day, is submission to civil authority, and that's verses 2 through 5. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. The people of God had made an oath that they would obey their king. And so God said, you better keep that. And Solomon said, if you want to maximize your life, then obey, keep your vow, keep your oath that you made when you made your king king over you. I counsel thee. When Solomon gives counsel, that's a pretty expensive counselor. And he's giving counsel to you so you should listen and obey it. Paul and Peter taught the very same things in the New Testament. And so we should do that. We obey our government. 
We obey our government, whether it's President George Bush or whether it might be President John McCain or whether it might be President Barack Obama. We're going to obey our government. We're going to obey our Congress, whether it's Republican or Democrat or anything else. We're going to obey our governor. We're going to obey our mayor. We're going to obey the Greenville County Council. We're going to obey the sheriff when he tells us to get out of the car so that I can check it for drugs. We're going to obey. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that in regard to the oath of God. God made authority. God established their offices. And God puts the men in those offices that are in the offices. And God directs the men that he put in the offices to behave a certain way on any given day. Do you believe all that? Amen. The king's heart. Every day when, a, when our president gets up or our governor gets up or a mayor or a sheriff. If a sheriff is in a bad mood at your window, God chose that occasion for you to meet a sheriff in a bad mood when you were speeding and so have fun god made that choice because god is in charge of the whole thing let's go to verse three quickly be not hasty to go out of his sight stand not in an evil thing for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him don't turn and walk away don't turn and walk away from showed respect and honor don't stand in an evil thing don't keep doing what you've been doing against government for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. God believes in absolute authority. He doesn't believe in checks and balances, except that he is the check and he is the balance. Amen. Look at chapter 10 and verse 4, because it's been one of my favorite ones since I was first exposed to the anarchist movement when I was a young, when I was a single-digit child. When I first began reading books about, against government. Ecclesiastes, I was seven years old when I first heard the first series of messages by an evangelist from Korea that uh, talked about the overthrow of America. It was going to happen in 1967. I was seven. I would be ten when it happened. I wouldn't be able to drive. I wouldn't be able to join the army. I was one upset young seven-year-old. I started sleeping with knives, and I've told you all that before. But let me give you the Word of God. This is, this is, this is a verse that's been helpful to me for a long time, Amen. for 44 years. Ecclesiastes 10.4, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. If a ruler, whether it's a sheriff or a president, is angry against you, don't leave where you are and go take them on. Don't go fight them. Don't go sue them. Don't leave your place at home and go try to take on government. For yielding, and this explains it, you're to yield by staying at home. Yielding pacifieth great offenses. If you've done something against government, if you will yield, you can pacify the one in authority for the offenses that you've committed against them. Its corresponding verse in Proverbs would say, By long forbearing a prince is persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. That's God's order for dealing with authority that is upset at you. Back to chapter 8. Verse 4, Where the word of a king is, there is power. The kings in the Bible were real kings. The kings that we have in the world today are only figureheads. There's not a real king. And there hasn't been for many, 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 many generations. Where the word of a king is, there is power. They can say the word and it's over. Your life is over. In the days of Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, he didn't even have to say a word. He just had an unhappy look on his face. And so the second in command in the nation had a bag put over his head, was carried out and hung on his own gallows. Because the men that stood in the curtains of that room where he was having a private lunch with his wife and the man Haman, they saw that the king was displeased 
and they took him out of the room and hung him on his gallows. For the word of a king is there is power. Nebuchadnezzar could say, I have a new state religion, and you will obey and participate in this state religion. All my sheriffs, governors, presidents, and so forth. This is in Daniel chapter 3. And if you don't fall down and worship my golden image, I'll throw you into a fiery furnace and burn you up. That's power. You know what the Bible says about the power of a, a king's voice and a king's word? It compares it to a lion. In, in, we have these words in Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 12. The king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion, but his favor is as dew upon the grass. Oh, I, I love despotic, absolute, monarchical authority. Why waste time with an inefficient Congress and Supreme Court? Let one man make the decisions as long as God is directing him. Amen. Like David, like Jehoshaphat. Like Josiah, like Hezekiah, that's a great government. A great king doesn't need helpers. All they, do, all they do is dilute his intelligence, dilute his knowledge, and dilute his efficiency. If you haven't figured that out yet, then just look at what's happened over the last week. The king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion. It says the fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. You provoke real government, you're sinning against yourself. So, remember, Ecclesiastes is a book of philosophy. Philosophy is what is life all about. The book of Ecclesiastes in our Bible is how do we maximize life under the sun. I want you to understand where we're going, why we're going there, what this book is in the Bible for, and what lessons should we walk out of here with. How do I maximize life on earth? Obey civil government at all levels. Pay taxes to all levels. Give honor and respect and due to all levels. Verse 5. Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. That's the king's commandment. If you obey the laws, you'll not feel any evil in your life. God will protect you because you're doing what right, what's right, and they'll leave you alone as well. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. That little expression is put right there, and the rest of the context, the next few verses, tell us, it's not there to tell us that there are times when you should disobey government. It's there to tell you that there are changing political winds and wise men are able to figure them out and adjust their conduct accordingly. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that when the wicked reign, righteous men hide themselves. They don't go into public because that's hazardous to their health. They don't change their view of things. They still believe that God is God and Baal is Baal. In the days of Elijah, there were 7,000 men that had not bowed their knees to the image of Baal nor kissed his image. But Elijah didn't know about them because they were hidden. Because guess who was ruling over Israel at that time? Ahab and Jezebel, and they were Baal worshippers. Right. So wise men understand the times. And I'm thinking of that passage that I'm not going to turn you to, though I want to. First Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32, there were 200 men of the nation of Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, who understood the times, and it was speaking of political times, and they knew what Israel ought to do. Wise men understand the interpretation of a thing. They can look at government and realize when a de facto government has replaced a de jure government. Jesus was able to do that by looking the Pharisees in the face and the Herodians that were standing next to them and say, show me the tribute money. And they showed him the tribute money, and he said, whose picture is this? And they said, Caesar. He said, well, if you're carrying pictures of Caesar around in your pockets on, 
on tribute money, then there has been a change of government in this nation and you should obey it. Therefore, render to God the things that are God and to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so we do that yet to this day. And on Wednesday night, we went over the fact of how we apply that in the year 2008 with the United States government against those anarchists who claim that the Constitution is their king and the IRS in present form of government has nothing to do with them. Which is, a, which is entirely a, a ridiculous joke, while they carry around in their pockets little pieces of paper that claim to be money that are nothing but FRNs, that's Federal Reserve notes, that means a promise to pay, and they're not going to pay you anything because the piece of paper is all that it is. So we come to verse 6. Since verse 5 introduced to the idea a man, a wise man's heart, this is the guy from verse 1, a wise man's heart discerneth time and judgment. He discerns that times, they are a-changing. He discerns that God is changing times. And he uses judgment before exercising or purposing to do anything. Verse 6 tells us, because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Every plan, business plan, strategic plan, career plan, educational plan, professional plan, financial plan, health plan, any plan that you want to make is subject to God's timing. And if his timing isn't agreeable with it, it's going to fail. And you have to have the judgment to see the times that God has already changed that are in front of you. Some you won't be able to see. But a wise man knows how to do it. He understands the interpretation of a thing. Because to every purpose there is time and judgment, therefore the misery of man is great upon him. Not the wise man. Foolish men. Foolish men do not understand what's going on. They can't foresee changing things. They don't recognize them. They're like the zealots in Israel. A zealot in Israel was one who was going to hold to the Old Testament Constitution. He was going to hold to the son of David being the only legal king over Judah and the nation there. He was not going to bow to Caesar. They were called zealots because they were zealous for their defunct nation of Israel. Didn't understand the times. And so the misery of those zealots was great. And they were eventually destroyed by the iron boots of Rome who ground them into the soil of Palestine, which was the Roman given name for that province. Speaking about these men, these men who don't know anything, and it's 99% of all humanity. Verse 7, for he knoweth not that which shall be. For who can tell him when it shall be? He doesn't know what's coming and he doesn't know when it's coming. But a wise man is able to use some judgment and be able to interpret things and see them. Remember what it says in Proverbs, a prudent man foreseeth the evil and he hides himself. A man who isn't prudent, it tells us this, the simple pass on and are punished. I guess Solomon should interpret his own book, shouldn't he? I can't do any better than that. Twice in the book of Proverbs, 22.3, 26.12. The prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished because they're unable to see the changing times. They're unable to see political change, business change, career change. So they get punished. So the misery of man is great upon him. We've learned two things about maximizing life. Get wisdom, obey government. Where else does it say to get wisdom? Proverbs chapter 4, with all thy getting, he said, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. 
David told Solomon that. Solomon told his son that. And we get to read it in the Bible. Get wisdom and obey government. So much so does a fool not know anything about the future. Verse 8 is put in here to tell us he doesn't even know when he's going to die. There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. A simple man who's a fool, doesn't fear God, doesn't understand the times and judgment, rushes on in his sin, gets punished and dies, doesn't even figure it out, doesn't know when he's going to die. He doesn't know anything at all. He doesn't know when anything's going to occur. Do you know how the Bible tells us to live? As if we're going to die tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day shall bring forth. That's the way we ought to live. In James chapter 4, and this is the greatest cross-reference to verse 8 right here. In James 4, it told us regarding a business plan to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, which is what men ought to do. They ought to have a business plan. Word 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 it this way. If the Lord will, we shall live, verse 8, and do this or that. Go into such and such a city, continue there a year by and sell and get gain, which is verse 7. That is how we are to live. So we've learned the third lesson. Since we do not know the future, not even our lives, when we make business plans, we are to submit them entirely to God's will for our lives, even our life. Because if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Three things we've learned about maximizing life. You want to maximize life? Get wisdom. How do I get wisdom? Read the proverb commentary every day. Meditate upon it. See where it can apply and fit in your life. Read the book of Proverbs. Read the whole Bible. It's full of wisdom from cover to cover. How about government? Every day obey government. Obey government cheerfully. Don't participate with those who rail on authority. If you participate with those who rail on authority, make jokes about government... Then may the Lord quickly speed along your wife and children doing the very same thing to you as they mock you behind your back as you are doing to the government over our nation. Men wonder why their children aren't obedient to them. Ha! They've made fun of government all their lives. It is a perfect, perfect recompense of reward for their insolent idiocy. I'm not defending my words. I'm defending the words of the God of heaven. Amen. He cannot stand those men who speak evil of dignities. Right. They are brute beasts. Do you know what he thinks of them? They're rabid dogs. Take them out and shoot them. That's right. Because they speak of those things that they know not. You, they have no, you have, I have, no clue about all that goes on in government. That's right. The weight that is upon those men's shoulders is one million times the advantage you have over your wife and children. A man that's a leader of his household makes decisions based on a collection of data and analysis that goes on in his heart, mind, and soul that is greater than his wife and children are capable of doing if that family is orderly and proper. But that man, the government is over that man far more than that man is over his wife and children in knowledge and analysis and and fear and worry and deep contemplation about weighty decisions. All you get to see is a press conference where a decision is made. You have no idea of the amount of data that has been 
sorted by the various helpers to a president or other government official before he makes that decision. God is first, and then they are little gods, and then we are their servants. And that is the proper order, and we should be thankful to be a servant in such a wonderful nation. We have the greatest nation on earth with the greatest form of government uh, on the earth of the present time, and we are very blessed. We come to verse 9. We are still dealing with kings. We're still dealing with politics. Let's read verse 9. The next lesson is verses 9 through 11. And it's that wicked rulers illustrate vanity. Wicked rulers are a vain thing. After it has said so many positive things about rulers, it doesn't tell you to disobey them. It doesn't tell you to overthrow them. It tells that God is able to punish them. Did we just have some readings to us by some men about God punishing some rulers? Was Nebuchadnezzar the greatest king this earth has ever seen? Yes, he was. Did God punish him rather severely? Yes, he did. He was driven from men and had to live like a cow for seven years. How about Sennacherib, king of Assyria? Did the Lord take care of him? Do you know why a child would be able to raid his army? Because the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 in one night. A child that barely knows elementary math or arithmetic was going to be able to write the size of his army because it was going to be so small. How did Sennacherib himself die? Well, he went into the house of Nisroch, his God, to bow down and seek his God for further military victories, and his sons killed him. Praise the God of heaven. He is glorious. He is the king of kings. That's what happened to the man who said, I'm like a valiant man. I have put down the nations of the people. I have picked up their gold like a little maid picks up eggs from a chicken. And the Lord says, Why should the saw be boasting against him that shaketh it? When you move a saw back and forth, the Lord's asking, Why should the saw be telling the man who's moving it that he is nothing? The Lord was the man moving the saw. The saw was Sennacherib. I love that passage. Verse 9, All this have I seen and applied my heart unto every work that is done under the sun. There is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. And so I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is also vanity. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Three verses, one lesson. Wicked rulers will meet their day when they meet God, and they are a vain thing on earth. These three verses are describing wicked rulers who oppress men to their own hurt. And so God judges them, though he may take his time in doing so, which results in them thinking that they are getting away with their wickedness, and it hardens their heart to be yet more wicked, just like Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord held off for a year, 12 months, and there was Nebuchadnezzar still boasting, he had not broken off his sins by righteousness, nor shown mercy to the poor. Did we read, was that read to us? That's oppression. Who ruleth over another man to his own hurt. Did Nebuchadnezzar get hurt himself because he didn't take care of the poor? Yes. Absolutely. 
Could he have lengthened his tranquility if he'd have taken care of the poor? If he'd have opened up one of his storehouses and gone through his kingdom and taken care of the poor, he could have lengthened his tranquility. Daniel said so. How about Sennacherib? He got to come into Israel and Judah and take their defense cities. He thought in his own heart that he was just expanding his empire. But God was just using him as a chastening rod. Remember, the staff in their hand is my rod. The Lord was just using Sennacherib and the great Assyrian Empire to punish his own people. And so for a while, Sennacherib got very haughty because God was holding back judgment and actually blessing his efforts. But then what did the Lord say? As soon as I am done with his purpose upon Mount Zion, I'll punish the fruit of his stout heart. That's what we have right here. Now we have used verse 11 many times. And we've used verse 11 for us to think about a political, political efficiency that when someone has committed a crime, their punishment for that crime ought to take place immediately. We get tired of reading in the paper that Texas or Tennessee or one of these great states or South Carolina that still practices capital punishment takes five to ten years to get the job done. Because it's not done quickly, people have forgot all about that crime. If it happened within 24 hours, it would help people to connect. You know, you can't discipline your five-year-old child next week for something they did today. They don't make the connection. But if we had murderers or those who committed other capital crimes, like cursing their parents or rolling their eyes at their parents, if we had them killed that day or that week, it would go a long way towards slowing down evil. And we've applied verse 11 that way, and verse 11 works that way, but that is not its primary intent. Its primary intent is that God does not execute his sentence quickly against evil rulers who oppress other men, and therefore their hearts are set in them to do evil, just like Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men, that is putting it in distinction to God, context drives all interpretation. Amen. He is not jumping to some rule for magistrates to read so they can figure out how to run government. He is explaining about the burial that is a vanity of rulers who who abuse their office in these three verses. Verse 9 should be easy for you to understand. That he applied his heart to every work that is done under the sun, and this is what he saw. He saw there's a time, a time, remember? A wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Sometimes there are good rulers and you can get, and you can do certain things. Sometimes there are bad rulers and you should not do those same things. A wise man's able to figure that out. He was able to see there is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to that ruler's own hurt. Verse 10, and so. So is an adverb meaning in the way that has just been described. And so. I saw the wicked buried. What kind of wicked buried? He hasn't jumped to some nebulous generalization about funerals of wicked men. He's talking about wicked rulers who have abused their office and oppressed those under their authority. And so I saw the wicked buried. What wicked? The wicked rulers that oppressed others to their own hurt from verse 9. And so I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of the holy. 
What is the place of the holy? It is the place of adjudication. It is the place of judgment. It is the throne of judgment. It is the court system. God is the, is the origin and source of all authority. God is the origin and source of judgment. And it is called the place of the holy because God ordained it. So much so that rulers on earth are called little gods, as we read last Sunday in Psalm 82. And so I saw these wicked, oppressive rulers who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and with what pomp and circumstance they did. Do you know what it's like when a judge takes his position at, at the bar of justice, or the Supreme Court has a sitting, or even greater than them, a king sitting on his throne? He saw these kings take their throne, you know, retrace their steps away from the throne till the next time of judgment. All the people giving them honor and respect as they went to the place of judgment where they were supposed to be protecting the poor and the needy. But they weren't doing it. They were ruling over men to their own hurt. And they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. All the attention that was poured upon them... All their, all their articles in the newspaper about their judicial proceedings, it's all forgotten when they're tossed in the ground because they were oppressive rulers. This is also vanity. This is a vanity about politics. That men are given an office from God, put into it by men, and men are willing to submit to their judgment, and they use it to abuse their authority. They oppress the poor. They do not use it to defend the poor and needy. They don't execute righteousness, righteous judgment. And so when they get buried, they're quickly forgotten when they should be the darlings of a nation. We have a George Washington in the history of our nation. Whether he was a Baptist, an Episcopalian, a, Ma- a Mason, or whatever, I don't know enough, and I don't think you can prove enough for us to say. But he was a good man. And he did fear God in some respect because he spoke of it. He was a noble man and he did the best he could with a bunch of hot headed, wild hearted Gadarenes that came here from the island in the continent of Europe. And we consider him the darling of our country. And if you don't, you have a problem with authority and may the Lord quickly bring your wife and children to treat you like the dog you are. Because he is one of the greatest rulers in the history of our nation. He was a stud in physical presence. He was a stud in military accomplishment. And he was incredibly intelligent and wise. He had been homeschooled by his mother and taught very diligently. He was a great man. He was, he's a darling of our nation. But men who are not like him, they're thrown in the ground and forgotten. And Solomon said, what a waste, what an evil thing to have happen when God creates this illustrious office of judgment. He puts the man in it, prepares him for it, the people submit to him, and he wastes the opportunity to discharge his duties right. He's thrown in the ground and forgotten. We have not forgotten George Washington. We still have a city where all of our leaders meet, and it's called Washington. We still have a Washington Monument. See if I have Washington in my pocket. Let's say that Jesus says, show me the money. Okay, I got him. I got a picture of him in my pocket. He's a darling of our nation. Out of the other 150 presidents we've had, I know I'm way off. Don't, don't, please don't send me emails. 
out of the other presidents we've had, you can't remember all their names because they weren't as great as George Washington. This is the evil that's described here. Now, why did these men think that they could get away with abusing their office? Why did they rule over other men to their own hurt? And who was going to bring about that hurt? God and their subjects. Why did it happen? Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Who is able to execute a sentence against a ruler? God. Does God sometimes hold back? Hold. hold. Did he let Ahab run for a little while? Did he? Did he make up for it in the end? What was the kind of nurse that washed away Ahab's blood out of his chariot? Oh, dogs licked it up. Okay. Ahab's wife Jezebel. How pompous and beautiful was her funeral? Dogs ate her. How much did they leave? Her skull and her palms of her hands and feet? Before the dogs ate her, what treatment did she get from the new ruler of Israel? Oh, he rode his horse and trampled her under its hoofs. Because sentence is not executed speedily, Nebuchadnezzar is what he was. Sennacherib was what he was. But God wants you to know, as our brother Keith read last Sunday from Psalm 50, verses 16 through 23. Because I kept silence, you thought that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But you just remembered this. I'm going to tear you in pieces. Right. And he does. That's those three verses. Here's, what ha- here's the word of God and how beautiful it is. When you're reading through this and you read verses 2 through 5 and you say, I've got to obey everything government tells me to do. I've got to do it cheerfully and respectfully and with honor. And I say to that, yes, you should because the Bible tells us that. And then it explains that only a fool would go against that and misunderstand times and how they ought to treat government in verses 6 through 8. Verses six through eight. Then the Lord gives us some comfort. There is someone that executes sentences against evil rulers. And it's the God of heaven. It's the God. He'll take. Who do you want to pick on? How about Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12? He gave a speech. He probably was eloquent. He had probably been trained decently in Rome. And the people at the end said, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Did he die peacefully in his bed with his children gathered around him? No. Kissing his forehead? He fell down dead and worms ate him. And on and on we could go. From beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. That's the lesson of verses 9 through 11. God sometimes withholds executing his sentence against the kings of this earth, though they are terrible kings sometimes. But he will in the end do so, or they will be thrown in the ground and forgotten. It's all vanity for their reign. There are men who abuse their office, but it turns to their own hurt. Right. So while you're watching a man misuse his authority, whether it's at the highest levels, a medium level, or a low level, if you're watching a man abuse his authority and misuse it, he is doing it to his own hurt. And there's comfort in that for all those who put their trust in God. Amen. And they will be forgotten in history. They will be lost because they wasted the office that God and men gave them. Verse 12 Verse 12. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, 
and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry. For that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life, which God giveth him under the sun. We'll deal with that when we get back. The summary is this. As you look at life, you see good things happening to wicked men. You see bad things happening to righteous men. And you wonder, where is God? And is there any reward for the righteous? Oh, yes, there's a reward for the righteous. There's a reward for the righteous now and later. Verse 12 tells us, the man who fears the Lord, it shall be well with them. Those that fear the Lord, it's going to be well with you. Those who do not fear the Lord, it is not going to be well with them in verse 13. And it is a vanity. It is truly one of the vanities of life that God, in the ordering of providence in this world, does good things to the wicked and evil things, bad things, hard things, painful things to the righteous. And so if you were to just look at those kind of circumstances, you would not see God's hand and love toward those that fear him. But we're supposed to get something from those three verses. We're supposed to get this. The man who fears the Lord shall come forth of them all. The man who fears the Lord, it shall be well with them. Even if a man who fears the Lord suffers some losses in outward circumstances, health, wealth, honor, inside he has the comfort of knowing the God of heaven and the God of heaven dwelling in him by his Holy Spirit. And in the next world, he has heaven forever. It shall be well with him. It shall not be well with the wicked. And it is vain to look at those things and to realize that that is how they happen. And that sometimes a sinner is able to commit sin a hundred times and it appears he's getting away with it. But he will not get away with it because those that do not fear God will not get away with it. They will get caught. They will be punished. And so the summary is... Fear the Lord in the face of all God's providence. Fear Him because you will have it go well with you in your life. And then, under the sun, while you're here, every day, eat, drink, and be merry because that's the portion God has given you while you're here under the sun. It says in 15 that a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat, to drink, and to be merry. But that's because he's already put the fear of the Lord in front of this verse. Once you fear the Lord, what what are you to do with the rest of your life under the sun? Enjoy it. Each day, enjoy it. Don't worry about who's getting away with what. No one is getting away with anything for long. The Lord is going to rule and execute sentence against the wicked. So just relax. Forget it. Ignore it. Don't measure things by circumstances. Measure it by the fear of the Lord and trusting Him and enjoy your life one day at a time. We'll come back and deal with that at length because I want to tell you about the beauty of God's religion. It is a religion that has a place for mirth. Did you hear the reading of Nehemiah chapter 8? That they had, what kind of mirth? 
great mirth because they had understood the reading of the book of the law of God. And the Levites actually stilled the people and said, quit your mourning, quit your crying, because they were, they were upset. They had just heard some things that they were guilty of. But they understood it, and they were convicted. And the Levites, by inspiration, realized, these are all very good things. Let's celebrate. And they sent, they sent the sweet, and they sent the fat. I don't care what the AMA says. The Bible tells me that when you want to eat good, you want the sweet, and you want the fat. And that's what they sent. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The religion of God is wonderful. The religion of the God of heaven. The gods of the heathen, they want your firstborn as a little baby, tossed into the arms of a molten God to be consumed before your eyes while the drums roll and you can't hear it screaming. Our God adopted us and sent his only begotten son to die for us. And then he told us, fear me. Love me, eat, drink, and be merry. I say, the religion of Christianity is superior to all religions on the earth. As light excels darkness. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.